the Choose Love movement offers no-cost solutions that keep our kids safe, providing them with the skills and tools they need to flourish. Join us in our mission to create the world we want to live in, one that's connected and compassionate. Check us out at chooselovemovement.org. Together, we can choose love. Hey, everyone. It is Scarlett Lewis. Welcome to the Choose Love podcast. I'm the founder of the Choose Love movement. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have incredible guests talking to us about something that might be impacting you and your children. It is called fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, FASD. And the statistics behind this are incredible. Uh, One in four kids is exposed to alcohol in utero and up to one in 20 children uh, might be impacted by this disorder. And our guests today are so distinguished in this field. We have Dr. Douglas Waite. Dr. Waite is board certified in developmental pediatrics, specializing in diagnosis and treatment of neurodevelopmental disorders, developmental delays, autism, intellectual disability, and fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, and care of adoptive children and children in foster care. Dr. Waite will provide a general overview of FASD, including clinical information, cause and prevention, signs and symptoms, misdiagnoses, secondary conditions, intervention, and treatments. Melissa Jacobs is the author of the book, The Accomplice and a Mother of Adults with Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders. And Jen Wisdahl is the Chief Operating Officer for FASD United. Jen leads the FASD United legislative and policy agenda and supports internal operations at FASD United. She trains members of the FASD community to serve as advocates and works with policymakers to advance FASD legislation. I'm saying that over and over because this needs to be in your brain and we need to be aware of it. Jen will provide an overview of the FASD Respect Act, which will be introduced in the House of Representatives and Senate during the 118th congressional session. Welcome all of you and thank you so much for what you do. Now, I'll just say that I became interested in this after speaking with Nicholas Cruz who was, is the Parkland, Florida high school shooter. And one of the jury members actually got in contact with me and told me about her interest in FASD. Now, Nicholas Cruz was diagnosed with FASD, and that was a big uh part of the foundation of what led to the atrocity that he did in Parkland, Florida. So that's where I came into this. But what I've learned, and and only the tip of the iceberg, we're going to delve into it today, is that everybody needs to be aware of this. Yes, I think that's a good point. Thanks for having us, Scarlett. Um, I, um, I, I think the Nicholas Cruz story brought some information to people about FASDs. I think it's important to realize that while Nicholas Cruz had fetal alcohol syndrome, this wasn't recognized and treated throughout his life. And it's even more important to note that most kids with an FASD don't go out and shoot people and are not violent in the way that Nicholas Cruz brought uh, tragedy to so many people. And and most school shooters don't have an FASD. Uh, Having said that, FASD, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, is a brain-based disorder 
it's brain damage that comes from exposure to alcohol, which kills brain cells before birth. And um, many times this happens in the context of women who don't know they're pregnant and are drinking just like most of us drink in everyday life, only to discover their pregnancy. Um, it also occurs among people who have substance use disorders and use alcohol with other substances. And the group of people that have an alcohol use disorder who can stop drinking often because they don't realize they have a problem or can't get the help they need. So I think this is a very complicated area um, that we need to focus on in getting help, identifying moms who need help before they get pregnant, um, and at the same time being able to provide substance use and alcohol use disorder treatment uh, to try to prevent this. That said, FASD, we like to say, is 100% preventable. I don't think that's the case. I think that um, as long as man has been around, people have been using alcohol, and this is not going to stop. Maybe there'll be a day when we can prevent the effects of alcohol damage on the fetus, and we could talk later about some studies that look at um, supplementation with choline, and probably just doing something simple like adding more choline into prenatal vitamins is a very effective way to mitigate some of the effects of prenatal alcohol exposure. I think an important point to make is that rates of FASD vary around the world. And there's places in the world that have rates of FASD far higher than what we have in the U.S. Uh, they don't have school shooters and they don't have school shooters with FASD. That's not saying that people with FASD don't become involved in the, the criminal justice system um, because they do. Uh, not all of them, but they do definitely. But um, school shooting is um, something kind of unique to the U.S. And, you know, it should be noted, too, that diagnosing FASD it doesn't happen very often. Right. That's not something that's typically looked at uh, in in trials. So um, things are changing. Things are growing. But, you know, as mom, I, you know, I, I'm a parent to three kids with FASD myself. I wouldn't necessarily wanted, want them painted uh, as being a school shooter just because they have FASD, um, because we know that that definitely isn't true or even a problem because they have FASD, because that doesn't have to be true either. And the only school shooter that I know that had a diagnosis of FASD was Nicholas Cruz. I, I think one of the things that is really important for us to, to begin to understand is, and you use the word disability, Scarlett, I think that's a very important word because we talk about fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Well, I don't like the disorder part of this. I see this, as you said, as a disability. Because a disability implies under federal law, Individuals with Disabilities Act, that we are responsible for giving supports to people with disabilities. If someone can't walk, we get them a wheelchair and we find a ramp so that they can get to places. They, we make it accessible. And when we talk about fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, which is often called the hidden disability, it's because so many times these kids look normal on the outside, normal on school testing, but they having extreme impairments in just getting through the day. And so one of the disconnects that's really hard for everybody to understand when you work with these kids, who, by the way, are wonderful kids, but who clearly have difficulties getting through the day, is the gap between their cognitive ability, their intelligence, and their just day-to-day -day practicality that we call adaptive function, their ability to meet the demands 
of the environment that get more great with age. So one key point of FASD is that this tends to get more easily seen, or if you want to say more challenging as kids progress in age, because the age expectations of behavior and functioning go up and many of these kids fall off that curve. That's where we often pick them up, but all too, all too often it's identified as a psychiatric behavioral disorder. And if I may add something in there, as these kids age, I am the mom, the parent of children impacted by FASD. There was no assistance whatsoever in raising my children over the last 25 years. As they age and they uh, run away from home or uh, leave home, uh, they do not have the protective factors or what I call the environmental prescription to keep them safe from their own uh, choices of poor judgment. And so, and, and as Dr. Waite said, as they age uh, and they aren't, they do not understand uh, the, the adult choices they're going to make, choices become more difficult. And without assistance, they do not have the abilities to make those correct choices. Now, my children are amazing and uh, amazing upbringing them, but it was difficult doing it without any support services whatsoever. And, and as, as Jen and Dr. Wade have both said, I mean, uh, you know, these children uh, who are impacted by FASD fall in different, uh, manifest itself differently for each child and also dependent on their environment of where they are and what they are exposed to, whether it be other kids who are not, you know, adults not making good choices on the street, drugs and alcohol, or screen time, which they morph into. And there's a lot more screen time now that is very, very damaging, like Call of Duty, uh, not uh, having social media that's going to say, oh, that's not a good idea. So they tend to morph into what they see and do. And when they leave their uh, the boundaries of their protective factors of home and they become adults, that's when we see also these children who are now adults who are emotionally uh, seven to 10 years or six to 10 years emotionally um, uh, not at their age, chronological age, and uh, who may find trouble. And one example, my daughter, when she left home at 19 or 18, she was incarcerated and the mental health courts didn't understand FASD, didn't uh, recognize her uh, developmental disability, and she was out on the street again. And was she diagnosed? Was she diagnosed? Um, she was finally, uh, I pre presented them with information. It didn't come from the courts, but I presented them with information uh, from a very uh, excellent resource, an FASD expert with a diagnosis of NDPAE. And uh, the court still didn't, mental health courts still didn't accept it. Now they have uh, substance abuse you know, courts, but they don't have the mental health courts to include FASD. And they still don't where I'm from. So. Um, my daughter's amazing, but these kids need to have their resources. They need to, they need, they deserve to have their strengths and gifts understood and their needs met. Well, can we back up for a minute and can we define what FASD is for the audience? Fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Um, we first became aware of how alcohol affects the developing fetus and specifically the, the developing brain, which is mostly what we're talking about in this um, this interview, but it, alcohol affects the developing brain. And the way that becomes manifest is over the course of development, starting at birth, 
there are delays that can appear over the course of development, commonly with difficulties in just soothing a baby in early infancy, difficulties in social interaction that often lead to diagnoses of autism, because mm. many kids with FASDs also have speech language delays. They can also have delays in gross motor, walking, things like that. But the most common thing is delays in speech and difficulties with behavior, early hyperactivity. And usually between two and three, kids learn that they don't get, they use words. Well, most kids that I know with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders have difficulties with that. They have difficulties with social interactions, navigating conflicts and using language in social interactions. And often a lot of their frustration from those difficulties manifest as what looks like aggressive behavior. And when it's really a manifestation of frustration and these challenges persist, this is a lifelong disorder. But just like we give services to children with autism that help develop areas that they might have not the, the amount that they need to be able to function, we can give interventions to kids with FASD. Doesn't mean it's going to make it better. This is a lifelong disorder but we can help support them and maybe give tools to augment the areas that they have difficulties in. So, you know, we, you know, I, your nurturing, healing, love sign behind you, um, I love. I work with families and this is um, the thing we bring to our children. Having said that, all too many parents I see feel like they missed, they didn't do enough for their kid. Um, and this is a disorder where you're born with, difficulties because of the exposure to alcohol that affects brain development. And as much love and, and, and nurturing as we give, sometimes the kids still have difficulties like Melissa was describing, and they end up doing things that get them involved in criminal justice or put themselves at risk or have severe psychiatric issues. So, you know, we try to repair this with love. We try to repair this with intervention, but this is a very difficult um, disability. And there are levels of FASD. Is that what I'm gathering from you all? And Doug, feel free to correct me if I'm, if I'm misspeaking, but um, FASD is an umbrella term that encompasses a, a number of uh, medical diagnoses that are related to prenatal alcohol exposure. And, you know, I think everybody knows about fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, it was uh, talked about a lot uh, back during, um, you know, in the 80s, 90s, um, there was a big push on it. But um, there's other diagnosable disabilities, like Melissa was talking about um, NDPAE. Um, that, what is that? Neurodevelopmental disorder, prenatal alcohol exposed. Okay. Um, yeah, so there, there's a number of diagnoses that can fall under this FASD umbrella. And, um, you know, some people, uh, roughly 10% of people with FASD have a, a low IQ, but the, the majority of people with an FASD, their IQ isn't impacted. It's how they process information in their brain is impacted. Right. The hard part is, is if you see somebody with a low IQ and they're more um, visibly struggling, right, those kiddos can get help. Those mm -hmm. kiddos can get can get services. Mm -hmm. It's the ones who have the, the average to high average IQs that really kind of fall through the cracks because um, in many states, IQ is a cutoff threshold for receiving disability support services. 
so they don't qualify for any services. You know, parents like Melissa, um, my own kids, they don't qualify for disability services when they're little, when they could use that support um, because their IQs are too high. It's seen as maybe poor parenting or permissive parenting because our kids' behaviors are so big and, and really, it, it has nothing to do with being a permissive parent. It has everything to do with the fact that their brains process information dif- differently and their stress tolerance is different. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a complex, really nuanced topic because there's so many um, different layers to it and layers to the children's behaviors. And, you know, as they grow, you know, if you figure your brain is forming when you're in utero, right, and the base parts of the brain, depending on the time of alcohol exposure, um, you know, they get impacted as the brain is growing and developing on top of that, you're going to see the other layers shifting to compensate for in, in some cases, but also, um, you know, as they grow, those things are going to become more pronounced, like, like Doug was saying. And then there's physical issues because, um, things along the midline are developing. Um, so your heart, your lungs, um, and if those are exposed to alcohol prenatally, you know, you can have issues there. So our young adults and adults with FASD, we see things happening with them from a medical perspective that you typically wouldn't see until somebody's older. But again, if you don't qualify for this for disability prior to the age of 18, you're out. So well, you test that that is there a test that you can give to see if your child has FASD? And what are the symptoms? Like if I'm a parent, and I'm thinking, okay, there was alcohol uh, exposure when my child was in utero. So if I'm a parent, what do I look for at each stage? And then what's the test? Let, let, let me let me answer your, that question, Scarlett. Maybe perhaps better ask answer your question about what are fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. I think if you look at this historically, we first began learning about the effects of alcohol upon child development in 1973, when Ken Jones and David Smith published an article out of the University of Washington, where they described a a constellation of facial features and growth impairment, meaning babies born small or who didn't gain weight well or didn't gain stature well, that they called fetal alcohol syndrome. A syndrome is something that doctors find on exams. So way before we knew that Down syndrome is called which is called trisomy 21 now, is caused because of three chromosomes on chromosome 21. Down syndrome, Dr. Down named it after himself and described things that we find on exam. We now know the cause of Down syndrome. In this case, the cause of fetal alcohol syndrome was postulated to be maternal alcohol use during pregnancy because all the babies that Smith and Jones described had documented prenatal alcohol exposure. So we began looking at this as something that you find on exam. Specific facial features, low height or weight impairment uh, along the course of development. And then the neurodevelopmental challenges that I was talking about earlier. Social interaction in infancy, gaining speech, gaining gross and fine motor development. So parents can look for delays in their development. And as a developmental pediatrician, I feel strongly that all children should be screened for prenatal alcohol exposure, both before the mother finds out she's pregnant and after in terms of how much alcohol they used prior to and after pregnancy. But most importantly, 
any kid who has a developmental delay, we have to wonder about this. So we now know that those kids that have fetal alcohol syndrome are only one in 10 kids that have fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, and that most kids don't have the facial features. This is why it's called a hidden disability, all right? They instead have these neurodevelopmental challenges. So when I see a kid that, might ha that has speech delay and might have autism or who has global delays in their development, I have to think about an FASD. The problem is most doctors never even begin to ask a parent. They don't feel comfortable asking a parent. And maybe parents, rightfully so, don't feel comfortable answering, yes, before I found I was pregnant, I was drinking about five beers a day. I lost my dad. I was depressed. Um, the father abandoned me, whatever. You know, there's lots of reasons people use alcohol. And mm -hmm. sometimes that continues even after a woman recognizes her pregnancy. So that alcohol exposure affects development before the it, brain development before birth, but it's seen after birth in developmental challenges. So parents know to look for developmental milestones and delays in development, but what they don't know is that alcohol can be a cause for those delays. In addition to thinking about things like autism or need for early intervention services or later difficulties with learning or behavior, we need to begin screening for prenatal alcohol exposure and seeing this not with stigma that these are bad women who are drinking because they want to hurt their babies. I have yet to meet a mom who wants to drink to hurt her baby, um, but because they didn't know or they didn't know they were pregnant, right? Um, those are common things. Or, you know, more tragically, they have a disease called alcohol, sub alcohol use disorder that didn't get treatment with all the talk of the opioid disorders, that mm -hmm. the use that's going on. We have not talked about how alcohol, people who use opioids and other drugs use alcohol, all right? So this is not an inner city thing, just like the opioid epidemic, this affects all of society. Alcoholism is non-discriminatory. Mm -hmm. And in fact, college, white, white college educated women, that's where you go to learn how to drink. And those tend to be women who drink most during pregnancy, up to 5% of women drink, binge drink during pregnancy, 11% use alcohol in the last 30 days that are pregnant, right? So this is a CDC study from 2022. So I'm just trying to highlight that this is very, very common. And the, the correlation between 5% binge drinking of women who, who are pregnant in the past 30 days of binge drinking four drinks in a sitting correlates with the one in five children that you talked about at the beginning of this, who have been shown to have FASD in studies in regular education in the middle of the United States, mid Midwest United States. Sorry for going on so long, but I wanted to try to give a little framework to this because uh, so those kids that don't have FAS, fetal alcohol syndrome, the nine out of 10 kids who do not have fetal alcohol syndrome or meet criteria for facial features, growth impairment, but have the neurodevelopmental challenges, those are what are called fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. It's a spectrum ranging from fetal alcohol syndrome to things like Melissa mentioned, neurodevelopmental disorder associated with prenatal alcohol exposure. So the child has delays associated with a history of prenatal alcohol exposure. If, if I can clarify something with that, and through the example of my family, when my daughter was in jail, and she had been seeing under the care of a psychiatrist. Uh, my kids had been, but they had not understood 
and what fetal alcohol spectrum disorder was. So I was always feeding them information wherever I could get it. But when she was in, in jail and, uh, and she was pregnant at the time, promised, you know, believe she didn't drink. But I said, if you did, it's okay. Let's get you nutrition. Let's get you help. And she was diagnosed from an outside source that I had to bring in with prenatal alcohol, uh, NDPAE, which is prenatal, uh, excuse me, which is neurobehavioral prenatal alcohol exposure. Um, when people hear the word developmental, which it is a developmental disability, they don't think of behavior. In, in my uh, experience, they think of, oh, developmental, that means their IQ is low. Well, a lot of them are average and above average. So in this uh, neurobehavioral disorder, prenatal alcohol exposure, again, the courts did not accept this diagnosis and uh, mental health courts, uh, the mental health courts did not accept it. And here we go again. And one other thing I wanted to mention is, there, there's a large percentage of these women that we suspect are also impacted by FASD. They're having, uh, you know, that, that become substance abusers uh, because of their uh, impact of FASD. And so it just perpetuates the problem if we don't get to the core of this. And again, as I explained to my children, your mothers didn't, none of this was intentional. The love was there. I adopted my children. So they understand uh, this and they understood, uh, you know, the problem with this not being recognized and the information not being fed to the public uh, to be recognized. So do we have any information on the propensity of those with FASD to go on and then become substance abusers? Or is there just a higher likelihood? They're, they're more at risk. They're at higher likelihood because we know substance use disorders run in families, mm-hmm. but also the kind of challenges that Jen and Melissa were alluding to, the emotional behavioral dysregulation that includes anxiety and increasing depression as they realize as they get older that they're not fitting in. Mm-hmm. What's the matter with me? Right? They start seeing the impairments that no one else is seeing except for the parents. Right? Mm-hmm. They start getting depressed. And there's a higher risk of suicide. There's certainly a higher risk of all the psychiatric conditions in kids with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. We know that kids that have ADHD are at higher risk for substance use disorders in, in a, later in, a, in adolescence. And all, most kids with FASD, their first psychiatric diagnosis, often between ages three and five, is ADHD. So again, any kid that gets diagnosed with ADHD, any kid that gets diagnosed with the psychiatric disorder, you got to ask about whether there was a history of prenatal alcohol exposure. Not did you drink during pregnancy, but before you found out you were pregnancy, pregnant, how much alcohol did you drink? Before you found out you were pregnant, how much alcohol did you drink? After you found out you're pregnant, how much alcohol did you drink? Right. And asking those questions to women who might be scared that if I say I drank during pregnancy, they're going to take my kid away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I came into this because I worked in child welfare and I was seeing kids with all the challenges that Melissa and Jen were talking about. And I didn't understand why, because I wasn't taught in medical school or in residency. Right. And it was only because I was seeing this and I didn't understand it looking through a psychiatric, you know, lens, what was going on that I remembered a picture of a kid with FAS that was shown to me for about one, 10 seconds in medical school. I went back and I realized this was going on. With the facial features. Yeah. So really common in foster care among adopted kids. That's what people tend to think with FASD. Um, but at the same time, we, there, 
probably being missed in the general population just as much. You know, mm -hmm. Upper East Side Manhattan, mom is working, but a functioning person with uh, alcohol use disorder, right? Mm -hmm. But has more supports so she can hide, so to speak, or mm -hmm. no one suspects it because she's white. This is not something that happens in the inner city. This is across the United States. Or she gets her kid private services. And That's right. They, they get taken care of and they're able to function, whereas exactly. another child that doesn't get any supports, as mm. Jen was saying, uh, as, uh, as Melissa was saying, that, uh, that they, they might do more poorly. Correct. It really is a health equity issue. Um, you know, having access to services, having access to uh, adequate prenatal care, having access to good food and nutrition and having access to information. That, that's the other piece. I mean, I think you know, looking at how we look at FASD in the U.S., um, even from a funding perspective. Um, so currently, uh, our, our federal government looks at FASD um, in, in, in two ways. Um, there is uh, $30 million, which seems like a lot of money, um, but if you compare and contrast that with other disabilities, it's not. <laughs> um, $30 million in research funding. Um, so we have a lot of research going on uh, on FASD. Not enough necessarily, but right. there's research going on, and that's been funded for a very long time. There's $11 million. Again, seems like a lot. We're a big country uh, at the CDC that is for surveillance and prevention. Um, there is a $1 million project, pilot project um, on um, educating medical providers and prevention. And that's it for mm. the federal um, investment in FASD. Mm. That, that, that's it. And I mean, you look compared to, to how broad this issue is and how many people it impacts, that's, that is a small amount of money. Mm -hmm. and, and if you notice, none of those funding streams have anything to do with people living with the disability. It's all meaning, about preventing yeah. and studying. Right. Meaning this is, it, this is taking place in, in research hospitals usually. And one of the gaps that we see is that the gap between research that's coming out that gives us lots of information mm -hmm. and people who are living on the ground and working people, physicians working on the front line or providers on the front line that either don't know about this or don't have the ability to get services for the kids. And that leaves the family stranded. That's the direction we really need to head. And um, I'm going to let Jen talk about the FASD Respect Act. Um, but I, I also... I wanted to, you know, um, go ahead. I forgot what I was going to say. Okay, it's all right, because I wanted to ask you a question. You had said before that this is not 100% preventable. And in my mind, I always, I always try to go there. Like, how do we prevent this completely? <laughs> and I would think that it would be to refrain from drinking alcohol during your pregnancy. And, and even if you're planning on getting pregnant, say you abstain from alcohol completely for three months, six months, a year before you try. I don't know what it is, um, but you're saying that it's not possible to 100% prevent this. And, and I might be shot for saying that, all right? Nope. Because, uh, uh, but I, I would argue if anybody listening to this has had a, a, a family member 
or have themselves gone through a substance or alcohol use disorder and are in recovery, you know how difficult that is. If you've seen someone you love drink themselves and seeing that their life fall apart and feel as helpless that you can't help them, as soon as you begin witnessing the devastation that alcohol, the disease of alcoholism and substance use disorder wreaks on a life and how helpless the people around them feel, you can begin to see that this is not 100% preventable. Now, having said that, yeah, I was gonna say overall, but like if for those listening and, and if you're young and you're planning yeah, on having don't that, drink. And yeah. <laughs> listen, this is the, this is the, the basis, this is the basis of the CDC recommendation. If you're a woman, and they should put in man too, of childbearing age or people who might ha- possibly be able to have a kid if they be, you know had intercourse, you should not be drinking un- unless you're using birth control, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the basis of that recommendation that caused a storm of outrage because it was looked at like the CDC was being in any state saying, you're telling us what to do. We know that women of It's such a child's way of responding, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, but, but listen to this statistic. 50% of women of childbearing age drink alcohol. And, you know, this is what, what happens. This is a CDC study. This is a very common thing. People drink alcohol. It's legal. And um, so I, I think that just thinking of this as being a disease of alcoholism is not necessarily the way to go. I think that's a large piece of this because this is dose dependent how much you drink. But it's also people who don't know they're pregnant yet, right? So if you don't know you're pregnant, that how do you prevent it? Well, you don't drink if you're not using protection, right? And even when people use protection, it's not only 100%, always 100% foolproof, right? We know there's no safe amount of alcohol use when you're pregnant. And when you're pregnant doesn't mean when you find out you're pregnant. It's when you become pregnant. Mm. That's the leap thing. And the more I work in this field, the more I feel that the single most important thing we can do as physicians and in providers is screening for prenatal alcohol exposure with those questions that I talked about. When did you find out you were pregnant? How much alcohol did you drink before you found that you were pregnant? How much after? Because until we begin identifying that, because there's no biological marker, we're not going to pick up these kids. Because you need a history of prenatal alcohol exposure to make a diagnosis of all fetal alcohol spectrum disorders other than fetal alcohol syndrome that we talked about earlier. Um, Talking about this on this podcast, I will mention the two, which is what I wrote about in my book Um, and our lived experience, living experience, which uh, it's still continuing, even though, you know, it, it was published, the story still continues and, and people are impacted. It's a living experience for them. Uh, but, um, uh, as they age and they're out of the safe boundaries that they were living in, that's when trouble can happen. If, uh, they are exposed to behaviors that are not healthy, meaning substance abuse, uh, the morphing into behaviors and, and activities in the criminal justice system. And that's when it becomes very, very difficult. If we recognize and diagnose this and intervention is given early on, uh, then uh, our kids all have a better chance. And I kind of keep saying this, they have strengths and gifts that they deserve to have their needs met because they're not having their needs met. And the caregivers are you know, quite candidly becoming exhausted as we age that we're throwing our hands up. But what are we going to do, especially when they're now of age, even though they're dismature 
or dysregulated because they're not getting their needs met and they deserve so much more. And one quick example, as I was raising my children, um, the children are all given as they go into their adult years, but as children, they're being misdiagnosed and they're giving, uh, they're not giving the correct diagnosis. So that's like putting glasses on with the wrong prescription. It makes it worse, not just putting glasses on, but the wrong prescription. And maybe even medicated on the wrong. It makes, what, what, just an example, it makes it worse. Anyone who wears glasses, you give them the wrong prescription, it makes it worse. And these kids are not only not getting help, but they're being given information that is not uh, their, their true diagnosis. So something has to be done. And to me, the FAFD Respect Act has to pass. It has to. Doctors do not have the coding uh, in the DSM-5 for fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So therefore, why code it? They'll code it something else and then our kids are going down the wrong path. Interesting. Okay. Jen, do you want to talk about the act? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I talked a little bit about the, the funding that goes for FASD and, you know, awareness is, is big. We need more awareness of FASD, absolutely. But to train our medical providers to integrate FASD-informed care, because there are interventions and supports out there that have been developed. They're just not available in the U.S. because they haven't translated from research to practice. And, um, and Dr. Waite said that when he was in med school, he saw a picture for 30 seconds that he then somehow miraculously pulled up years later in his mind. So that's right. training. So it's, it, you know, it's having the funding to be able to put those trainings and putting, put those, um, weave that FASD informed stream of care into our existing infrastructure. And the FASD Respect Act does that. It uh, provides funding to states to be able to start looking at their existing infrastructure from child welfare, from uh, their the state health department to education, um, to expanding diagnose, um, access to diagnosis. Um, passing that bill will help bring funding to states to be able to improve things for the people living with FASD, um, bring up awareness of al alcohol use during pregnancy. It's really meant to be kind of the starting point for how we turn the ship uh, <laughs> and, and get some support and um, some recognition of, of this, this disability. You know, I'm, as a parent myself, um, you know, going into the school system, nobody in the education system really understands this. And so your kids go into school and they have these behaviors and they're given uh, different approaches that may, maybe don't work based on their disability is the wrong prescription. And um, it leaves them feeling awful. It leaves them feeling like they're a failure. And so educating our systems of care um, is really important because otherwise they're left feeling like they're the failure as opposed to the systems of care failing mm -hmm. them. And so the FASD Respect Act, um, it was introduced by uh, Senators Kobachar and Murkowski. Um, so it's bipartisan legislation in the Senate and then uh, in the House by, um, or sorry, Senators um, Kobachar and Murkowski, Representatives Bacon and McCollum. So again, bipartisan uh, support both ways there. Um, we introduced it last um, legislative session and uh, 
we're this close to passing. Um, we've introduced it again and are really hopeful that um, this legislation will go through um, this legislative session. Um, we've had advocates from around the country um, reaching out to their two senators and their rep to let them know that um, having FASD informed care is important. Um, FASD is important. That's why we call it the FASD Respect Act, um, because we need people to be aware of um, not just FASD as a disability, but also the people living with FASD. Um, so uh, other things that this bill would do is bring back a, a center for excellence. Um, so there was funding back in the back in the 90s, uh, back in the early 2000s to support um, uh, FASD. And all that funding and all that authorization is gone. Um, it's, it's expired. There's other than those programs I mentioned, there's nothing left. So uh, this would reauthorize the Center for Excellence, which would take all of that research that's been done, that great research, and then help put it into practice, give states technical assistance, uh, give uh, organizations technical assistance on integrating that great research evidence-based practice that um, exists and putting it into um, actual day-to-day -day life. So um, really excited to, um, to work on that and really excited to have, you know, last legislative session, we had almost uh, 1,400 advocates reach out to their legislative um, uh, members and, and advocate for this. We ended up with 74 co-sponsors in the House and 10 in the Senate. Um, there's been FASD-related legislation introduced every legislative session um, since the 90s, with the exception of one. And the most support we had uh, during that time was 10 co-sponsors of legislation. Um, and last time we had uh, 84 total. So we're really, um, you know, this is a movement that's growing. This is a community that's growing as we become more aware of it. And you know, there's a lot of people who kind of think about politics as something yucky. It, it, it feels gross. Right? It's not something they're used to doing. And what we do is really teach people how to advocate for change, how to advocate for something positive and how to speak to their legislators. And, and it can be as simple as, uh, you know, sending an email. Um, you know, through COVID, most of the visits we do with our legislators are now over Zoom. So this is something that you can do from the privacy of your own home in your pajama pants, uh, <laughs> meet with your senators or your representatives and, and talk about the issues that are important to you. And, and one of those really is the FASD Respect Act. Um, you know, again, contextualizing it, one in 20, that's a kid in every classroom. That's a kid on every ball team. That's a person in every workplace because these kids grow up and this isn't something that goes away. So it's not just um, a disability that happens in childhood. It's a it's, it's a lifelong thing. And, and I think that like the, the, the go to for people listening might be like, well, I know that that's not my kid, but it is a kid that's in your child's class that could possibly impact their school experience. So it's like we are all in this together. So it's in everyone's best interest to advocate for this. And if it's writing an email, I'll tell you what, just doing that one positive action can overcome a lot of anxiety that you might have for your child's safety, health, and well-being. It's actually doing something. And when you do something, it puts you more in control of your life. And of course, 
because your kids love to know that you're advocating for them. Let them know that you're doing this. In fact, introduce this concept to them. Talk about it. Wow, I just heard this great podcast and there's this thing. They're going to grow up to be parents themselves. Absolutely. Sorry, and and just to point out, though, that, you know, research has shown us that kids with FASD, people with FASD are far more likely to be victims of crime than to than to perpetuate the crime. So, you know, I just want to be really clear on that. Our kids aren't monsters. You know, Our, our kids aren't terrible people. Our kids are loving and kind. They may have issues with impulse control. They may have issues with um, uh, behaviors or their ability to sit still, but these are disabilities. These are not, these are not bad kids. Uh, mm-hmm. These are not bad people. And, you know, I think that, you know, FASD is, is used um, as an insult among teenagers. Uh, it's used as a, a scare tactic. I once was uh, told by a principal of my kid's school, well, don't let anybody know that your kids have FASD because then they'll be scared of your kids. And really, we've got to change that because that that is not the case um you know my my kids aren't violent do my kids struggle with big emotions absolutely absolutely do we all and and i need to add something onto that jen and i'm so glad you brought that up and uh i want people to understand my daughter who was in jail uh non-violent felony she followed and was uh uh coerced basically into allowing someone to do something to her bank account which got her in trouble so she really was the victim Mm -hmm. of this crime that she was charged for and she wouldn't reveal who the true uh instigator was so um uh she refused to and so there's their vulnerability their gullibility they're wanting to be liked uh and she is incredibly gifted I'm sorry. Lack, lack of lack of self-esteem too. Lack of self- She's incredibly gifted in so many ways. And she is one of the most loving people that I know. So uh, you know, put in these certain situations these kids are put in in a society that doesn't understand how to help them is putting them in harm's way. So Jen, thank you for uh, you know, bringing that up because I wanted to make sure I was very clear on wh- why she was there. Um but- let, let me put it this way, Scarlett. What what other illness, what other disease or disability in our society that affects one in five kids <clears throat> would not be diagnosed, would not be, have a storm of press about it, right? Think about COVID. Think about Zika virus, right? Ebola virus. These, this is something that, you know, like Jen said, every kid in, in a class, when I present to physicians, you have taken care of kids every day with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. But unless you were the ones that diagnosed them, you probably didn't know it, right? This is not being diagnosed. So imagine you being a person who has diabetes. You go to a doctor and they look everything up. They say, I don't know anything about diabetes. I don't, I don't even know if that exists. Mm-hmm. I don't believe the research that says that that happens. Mm-hmm. And you don't get treatment. You go to another one, you go to another one. This is what the parents of kids with FASD do. They go around and they try and get services. In 1980s, no one knew about autism. But guess what? Parents stepped up and they advocated for services. Mm -hmm. Autism Speaks website was formed by parents Mm -hmm. advocating for services for their kids with autism. So now when I diagnose the kids with autism, I put them on the, the train and all the services fall in place. My dream is that that would happen with kids with FASD. And you have to ask yourself, why is that 
not being diagnosed if it's one in five kids? And the answer is pretty clear. It's because of the stigma associated with alcohol and substance use disorders, especially among women, especially among pregnant women or women who use drugs or alcohol during pregnancy. We have names that are derogatory for women who drink excess alcohol or who use drugs. Men, they're just hanging out with the guys. But for a woman to drink, especially drink during alcohol, there are studies that show there's more stigma against that woman than someone who's incarcerated, right? Or someone who just has a substance use disorder, but a woman who has a substance use disorder or alcohol use disorder during pregnancy, that's the highest stigma. So we're talking about trying to shift this. And I think that's why the opioid epidemic that hits middle America, white and brown, everybody across the spectrum is important because we're starting to see this as a disease that takes away your ability to stop using and takes away everything you love in life. These are good people who have a disease that we as doctors are not good at taking care of. This is not about willpower. We will have a cure for this one day, I'm hopeful. And I am hopeful, like we talked a little bit about Colleen, um, a psychiatrist from Chicago, Carl Bell, his dream was to put it in the drinking water, but forget about that. Put it in prenatal vitamins. It's a, a natural vitamin that we all need that develops the brain and mitigates the effects of alcohol exposure on the developing brain. So if it was in prenatal vitamins and still a woman had alcoholism, that baby would be partially buffered by the effects. So what are we waiting for? There's no side effects to taking cold. I agree. And and I also want to make the point that it's not just women with substance abuse disorders, alcoholism, mm -hmm. but there are different levels of alcohol exposure and any level of alcohol exposure when you're pregnant can lead to FASD. Well, and, and I think that that's a great point too, behind what Doug was saying about the stigma. This is part of why, you know, when we talk about it being 100% preventable, that message can be damaging. Because why on earth would you want to identify as a mom who did something that is 100% preventable when really, in a lot of cases, it's outside of your control? Um, you know, if you have an alcohol use disorder or if you're drinking prior to recognition of pregnancy. Or if you use it as a coping mechanism to reduce your pain and it's really and you're in survival mode and it's your way of coping and you don't have any other coping skills, you know, there's that's you go to alcohol. A lot of these kids and adults, those impacted have high anxiety and, you know, self-medicating with the alcohol, uh, you know, is something that is commonly done. Uh, just to self-medicate. And that's where many times in my experience with the parents that I'm talking to and their children are uh, becoming substance abusers because they're trying to self-medicate for their anxiety, uh, uh, you know, with the alcohol. So, or, or then further, you know, with the drugs, but the alcohol, of course, you know, is basically where it stemmed. And so Melissa, I, can we see a, oh, I was just going to ask to see a copy of your, the cover of your book. And can you talk just a little bit about what's in your book? Yes. Um, it is called The Accomplice. Um, and just to let you know, FASD is hidden branches in the cover of it. So the letters FASD, there's the S. Oh, wow. Okay. I can kind of, so, so for those of you who can't see an image and you're just listening to this, 
the cover is all of these birch trees and right. they're all kind of coming together, but there are these very subtle letters in the back. Um, and I, I can see them now, but only when you pointed it out. And, and uh, it was very intentional to make this cover like this. Uh, birch trees are adaptability. Uh, uh, and this is what we need for our children. And there's two sets of angel wings that represent those of you on this call who are those who are supportive of parents and children who are impacted by FASD. So there's an angel right there. But it is um, it is a story of a living. It's funny. I, I originally keep calling it lived and then the change makers. Uh, someone uh, from the change makers I heard spoke said living. And that's exactly what it is, because even though the book is published, I continue to live through this. My children, adult children live through this. But this, it's uh, the accomplice, the invisible disability of FASD. In fact, Doug did one of, Doug is actually did the first praise for the book and his information is there. In the back of the book are about 13 resources, which include the first one is FASD United. And it is a story, and I call it a nonfiction novel of a story of a family's uh, experience, living experience and advocacy to try to get help. And uh, it is based on the fact that the accomplice uh, society's ignorance of not recognizing this. And um, I uh, didn't know what else to do. I've written proclamations. I'm very active with FAS United as an advocate. And uh, I realized I, people who are parents who are trying to help their children keep a lot of notebooks and a lot of binders because so much is going on. And if you have more than one child, so much is going on. You can't keep track of these two write notes. So I really had the book and the timeline ready to go. I just didn't know it. So I'm just a parent who penned it in, in a book form. This is a story of many, 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 many thousands and thousands of parents that need help. And I just happen to put it after very lengthy prayers, put it in a book form. And it's important because, you know, most doctors haven't heard of it, uh, Dr. Waite, that's according to what you're saying. And so you're really a parent out there and you're relying on the internet and your own searching to figure out what to do at this point. I mean, there is the United, there, there are the different resources that we will definitely put links to for everybody who listens to this podcast, as well as in our newsletter. I want to make a mention. I did three dedications, but one of them was to doc, the late Dr. Carl Bell, who passed away four years this summer. Uh, he was amazing. I did a dedication to him and I placed his book that he was just about to promote before his untimely death. His book is in there and it talks about choline. So uh, his book is made mention in the front of my book. And uh, Doug, thank you so much for mentioning him. I've Every time I talk, think about FASD, I think of the work that this man did and uh, his message is still going to get out there through this book and people like you. I think of him eating lobster at this conference we had in Maine uh, where I dragged him up there and uh, it was quite a picture. But um, <laughs> You know, I, I think that, uh, thank you, Scarlett, about the links. I think the American Academy of Pediatrics has great information on this, okay. uh, CDC, and probably the single best place to send everybody is FASD United, obviously. You know, it's yeah. interesting because I, I spoke to the one of the previous presidents of Autism Speaks, and I told him about the Choose Love movement and the solutions that we put into classrooms. And he says, you know, that's interesting, but my child has autism and I'm wondering if they're going to be able to learn uh, the skills, tools, and awarenesses that you teach 
like other kids. And I said, you know, I don't know uh, how they'll be able to process that information. But what I do know is that every other kid will. And the way that they treat your child will be different. They will thoughtfully respond with love. They will be more caring and concerned and compassionate. They'll be more connected. Uh, and so I feel this way about FASD too. You were going to say something, Dr. Waite? I, I was just going to say, you know, that the tantrums that Melissa was describing, those are things we expect between ages two to three. That's why we call them the terrible twos. So one way to think about a lot of the behavioral challenges we see with kids with FASD, which is the most obvious problem that the kids have, you know, they can have speech delays and everything, but behavior is the way this presents. Kids that are problem behaviors in school and at home, um, but especially schools where this really comes to light, is these are kids that can be 18 going on too. They can be smart, they can be 18 years old, but their ability to manage frustration is often at the level of a two or three-year-old, right? And it's very difficult to put that together when you have a kid who can do math, who can speak really well, maybe doesn't hear it and understand and receptively take in what you're saying well and can't necessarily converse like we'd expect as an 18-year-old, but they have this emotional behavior of this regulation. To us, this looks like this is a kid who's just wilding out, you know, it's, his, it's a psychiatric issue, give him meds. This is a brain-based disorder. And yes, it presents with psychiatric issues. And sometimes we try medications. But in kids with FASD, medications are notoriously often not that helpful. What does help is the environment. And the environmental supports is what we need to get. That's why we need the FASD Respect Act to be passed. So we can begin getting services and boots on the ground to help kids and families. Well, we will definitely help in that. And I know that the listeners of the Choose Love podcast are doers and they want to be part of the solution. That's why they're listening. So we'll include all the links that they need to reach out. And I just appreciate all of you so much for taking the time to be on this podcast and to share your stories and your wisdom. And this will make a difference. We will spread awareness and we will also stay connected. And most likely we will do more together in the future. Thank you, all of you. I feel like this is this is what I consider choosing love. And so I'm going to thank you for choosing love. Thank you. Thank you for um, turning your pain into a blessing, Scarlett. Yes. You're a model for all of us. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate yeah. that. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Scarlett. Hey, 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 oh. It's all part of us. We can all choose love. It'll lift you up if you let it in. Let the healing